we are glad that you came out today. Isn't it good to be making progress with uh, the coronavirus restrictions and uh, uh, rolling those back and hopefully people being healthy, right? Uh, more important than whether or not we need to wear masks is whether or not people are staying out of hospital. And, uh, and so we, we praise God for the progress that we've seen in that area uh, over the, the last couple of years. Once again, today we find ourselves on our buddy bench with two women from the Bible. And today we're moving into the New Testament. We actually, though, find ourselves in an awkward situation. Because we're sitting with two women whose stories we know well, but whose names we've never heard. And as we sit with these women for a moment, I would like you to consider... How would you be described if you didn't have a name? How would you be described if you didn't have a name? Um, would you be described by your job, by your interests, by your appearance? Would you be known as the man with the glasses? The round glasses, the dark glasses. Would you be the woman from Mississippi or California or wherever it might be? Would you be the girl with good grades or perhaps the boy who collects coins? What would stand out about you? And if this is how we went through life, that about the age of 10 you were given a name, and that name was based on your personality and your character, and it was a descriptive of who you were, you think maybe you wouldn't care at age 10. But maybe somewhere down the line you would start paying attention to the way you behaved so that the description, the title, the tag that was given to you was something that was positive rather than negative. Right? Wouldn't everybody want to be the girl with good grades rather than the girl who fails every class? And so, even if those names are accurate, that you do actually fail every class, we don't want that as our name. That's not how we want to be known. And we would probably say something like, my grades don't define who I am as a person. And so the two women we sit with today are both found in the Gospel of John. We just read about the first one from John 4, uh, part of the conversation that this woman has with Jesus. What do we call her? She's the woman at the well, right? Maybe the Samaritan woman. Don't know if that's better or worse. And the other woman that is going to be sitting on our bench today is found in John 
her story is found in John chapter 8. And we know her as the woman caught in adultery. So let's join their conversation this morning. Good morning, no name. Well, hi to you too, no name. How do you feel about no one knowing your name? Well, actually, as the woman caught in adultery, um, it, it's, I don't mind it too much. I mean, after all, I'm famous for sinning. Woman caught in adultery is probably better than Juliet, daughter of Eli the Benjamite. At least this way. My family doesn't have to live with the shame of my actions. I'm disconnected from my, my family. Well, I can, I can understand that, I guess. Going to the well for water was just a small part of my day. But suddenly, I'm the woman at the well. I guess it's still better than the woman burning toast or something worse. Something worse? Like me? You're right, though. I I know that I was in the wrong. I deserved a punishment. But there are a couple of things about my situation that most people don't seem to understand. The first thing, I think, is fairly obvious. But the guy I was with got off scot-free. Those religious leaders weren't interested in justice. They weren't interested in honoring God. They weren't interested in doing the right thing. They just wanted a body of somebody doing something wrong that they could use to trick Jesus. And I happened to be an available body. The second thing most people don't realize is that no one actually got stoned in Jerusalem. I know it says that in the law, but we'd stopped that a long time ago. I wasn't the first woman to sleep with a married man in Jerusalem. But I never heard of anyone else getting executed. That was all part of the trick. If Jesus said, hey, ignore the law, don't don't do what the law says, don't stone her, then he'd be in trouble with the Jews for undermining God's law, even though nobody kept it. But if he said, I should be stoned, then he'd be in a whole lot of trouble with the Romans. That was their job, to take life, to dole out justice. The third thing most don't realize is how Jesus changed my life. It had been years since I felt like a man really cared for me. Jesus could have punished me. He could have given me a lecture. He could have even walked away 
and ignored my situation. That would have been safer for him. But he stood up for me. He wouldn't let those other guys use me for their purposes. And last, I really wish I had a name that showed how Jesus saw me. Sure, I don't want my name splashed in the headlines. But woman caught in adultery? That's how my accusers saw me. All I was to them was a sinful woman. If I'm going to have an ambiguous name, I wish it was something along the lines of the woman Jesus refused to condemn. Or maybe the woman who left her life of sin. Or the woman Jesus rescued. I like those names better. I'm honestly inspired by your story. All of us have regrets, sins, and failures in our past. But not all of us have to live with that moment defining us for the next 2,000 years. As horrible as it was for you in that moment, surrounded by this group of religious leaders calling for your life, I can't imagine what that was like. But as horrible as that was, I truly believe that the grace Jesus showed you has the power to change the world as much as as it changed your life. Now my story is similar. People are so quick to jump to conclusions. John, that guy, he mentioned two things about me. And those are the two things that everyone remembers. Yes, I had five husbands. I'm not even going to go into it all now. The details aren't the point. But why does everyone think I divorced husbands for fun? Women can't even initiate divorce in our culture. Do they know that men die sometimes? And let me ask. Would you get married a sixth time after you'd been through five? Besides, my dowry had run out. Well and truly by this time, no man wants a wedding with a woman without a dowry. Again, I'm not saying that some of their assumptions aren't correct. I'm not saying that I was perfect. But I'm saying... Life is complicated. And how do those folks know whether I'm the second wife or the first wife? Whether I'm a concubine living quite happily or not? But they assume the worst every time. And when they do that, they miss the reason that John included my story in the gospel. He didn't include the story to paint this picture of a promiscuous Samaritan woman. 
He painted, he included my story to reveal the impact of the good news on Samaritans. I get that. It's as though our sexuality defines us. As though women's minds are too too weak, too feeble to understand the teachings of Jesus. I love that you asked him questions about the Bible. I'm sorry that no one gives you credit for that. Well, I do have to admit that my conversation with him was confusing at times. Water that's living, water that never needs to be filled again. But I really don't feel bad about that because just a little bit earlier, he'd gone to Nicodemus, the teacher of the people of Israel, and he couldn't understand what Jesus was talking about either. Born again. But Jesus took time to answer my questions. And when he said that he was the Messiah, I couldn't believe it. Everyone had been talking about this Messiah for years. People think it was just the Jews in Jerusalem, but in Samaria we were looking for the Messiah as well. And it was like, just wait till the Messiah comes. Oh, when the Messiah comes, it'll be better. Oh, life will be good when the Messiah, when the Messiah comes. Like that's ever going to happen. But then he knew who I was. He knew things that he couldn't know which got me thinking and got me wondering. And then when he said, I am he, the Messiah. Oh, it was, my my heart just filled and overflowed. It was so exciting. Could this really be true? I raced back to town and, and I told everyone I knew. My meeting with Jesus didn't just change my life. It changed our town in the best of ways. Although, I will admit, woman at the well is just so generic. I'd rather be called the first female evangelist, or maybe just the first evangelist, or perhaps the messenger of good news. Something like that would be better than simply woman at the well. And here's my question for you. Can you explain why do people want to keep describing us by who we were before we met Jesus? All right, we'll leave those women sitting there continuing that conversation. But I want us to think about that question that we closed, that they closed with. Why do people want to keep describing them, perhaps us, by who we were before we met Jesus? As I listened to these two women talk in our imaginary conversation, I find it fascinating that over the centuries, what we've done through, through our churches, through our writings, just the headings that we have in our Bibles, 
uh, is really the opposite of the example of, that Jesus gives in his interactions with these women. So um, Jesus treats both women, the woman caught in adultery and the woman at the well. He treats both of them with respect. He acknowledges their needs, their struggles. He, he doesn't pile on top and, and just layer on guilt uh, when he has the opportunity to do so. He, he says, no, this is what you need in this moment to each of them, whether it be the one who has had her sin just thrown out into the public uh, square or, or the one who's had this life of chaos, whatever the cause of her five marriages plus whatever relationships, what, whatever the, the reasons for that, her life is turmoil. That's not a happy existence. It's an existence. And... and And so Jesus meets them where they are, gives them value, treats them with respect, as opposed to others that would point their fingers at them and use them simply as means to an end. And so while Jesus treats them that way, the church, through history, has tended to sexualize them and focus on their relationships as though that becomes the point of the story or why the women are significant. And I want to suggest it wouldn't matter if the woman caught in adultery was a thief. The point isn't her particular sin. The point is how Jesus interacts with her once her sin becomes public. And likewise, for the woman at the well, the point isn't that she's had this um, past of numerous relationships of the grief that she must be carrying with her. But, but usually that's, that's sort of a judgment on her. I read commentaries by authors I respect that just assume that, yes, she's been divorced five times. But the text certainly doesn't say that. But we make her out and, as though she is a promiscuous woman. The point of the story is just that Jesus knew who she was. The point of the story could well be that Jesus knows her hurt rather than he knows her infidelity. The point of the story is that Jesus has living water for her. And and the point of the story is that she's a Samaritan, not a Jew, and that Jesus is sitting and eating and drinking and with her and talking with her. And yet, we've tended to characterize both these women in ways that highlight they're the parts of their life that we know that are most shameful. And so our application today, this isn't a long sermon, is it? Our application is really pretty simple as we look at these two women. The first point is simply to show people grace. Right? The, 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 that's what Jesus, Jesus does. And we'll be looking at, uh, in, in our growth groups this week, we'll be talking about uh, the, the woman in John chapter 8, that Jesus extends grace to. And, and, and thinking about how does Jesus, like there, there's so much, so many people pointing out her guilt. And Jesus simply says, go and sin no more. That this wasn't his moment to sit on the seat of judgment. He doesn't even call her to follow him. 
He just says, relax. Get out of here. Go somewhere safe. And sin no more. And, and so there's a need for us as, as followers of Jesus to treat people with grace, isn't there? And, and that's, that's hard for us. It's much easier to judge. Much easier to judge. Grace is messy. Grace is difficult because sometimes we feel like, oh, we've shown too much grace. We've shown, we've reached our limit of grace. We're not really helping them to make changes. We're, we're not really helping them to become more Christ-like. Uh, you know, grace is, is complicated as we try and, and balance that. But I want to suggest one way that we can learn from these women about showing people grace is by treating them as who they are now, not who they used to be. Treat them as who they are now, not as who they used to be. And, and it's amazing that in churches, as much as any, any other group of people, and I guess because churches are filled with people, that, that we uh, can categorize people. <laughs> you remember we gave that task to that person and asked them to do it, and they, they fell through, they got too busy, they never followed through, and, and, and that event, that thing that we hoped would be done wasn't done, I'm never asking them to do something again. <laughs> Remember that time that person said so, such and such to so and so and it was so insensitive? I, I could never trust them if, if I said something, you know, if they found out something about me or if I had a need. And, and, and so we, it, it can be very hard within the church for, for people to get out of the boxes that their past behavior has put them in. And so we need to be careful as followers of Jesus that we treat people as uh, who they are now, not who they used to be, and be willing to extend grace to them. We don't know what happened to the woman in John chapter 8. I've got no idea if she actually went and left her life of sin. I've got no idea if she became a follower of Jesus. We're not given that information. It's just a little imagination and conjecture. But I do imagine, I do believe it would be difficult to leave that experience of having someone stand up for you when your life is on the line and take a risk without it being impacted in your thought process towards that person. Let me make another application here. And, and this one, I, I think they're, they're similar, they're related, okay? And, and that is that it's important that we, we don't minimize people. That we don't minimize people. Um, I, I think that's, it, it's no secret that as you read the Bible, it's male-centric. The, the heroes in most of the stories are men. The books of the prophets are written by men. The Psalms are mostly written by men. And so what I've hoped to accomplish through this story is to highlight these instances where women are in the story. And to make sure that as we do that, we're not minimizing their contribution. Right? That, that David... We, we haven't talked about this. We talked about David and Abigail on a Wednesday night uh, recently. But, but David may have never become king. 
if Abigail hadn't intervened on his behalf. Like, the, the, David and who he was as a king is surrounded by women speaking into his life and standing up for God or, or um, bearing witness at key moments in his life. And, and so rather than seeing them just as, oh, they are, you know, they're the, um, what am I trying to think, the extras on the stage with the main actor, we need to recognize them as having the leading roles in the story, as co-actors, co-parts of the, the story, that God uses them to influence the history of Israel. Uh, certainly uses them to bring Jesus into the world, which is where all of these stories lead, isn't it? But it, and, and so we can minimize the women of Scripture and their contributions. But think of the, the woman at the well that we read. She's not just the woman at the well. She is the first evangelist to Samaria. Now, we usually, perhaps with our male centricity, we, we usually give that distinction to Philip in, John, in, in Acts, the, the first chapters of Acts there, right? That Philip goes to Samaria and, and shares the good news. And, and, and it's different. He shares the good news of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But the woman from John chapter 4, she's already gone to Samaria. Right, she's loosened up the soil for the seeds that Philip's going to sow because she's introduced people to Jesus, if not to his death and resurrection. It's difficult to know the sequence, exact sequence, because sometimes the Gospels don't put things strictly in chronological order. But it seems that she's the first person that Jesus explicitly tells that he's the Messiah. Think about that. John, if we were to John the baptizer in, in the first chapter of, of the Gospel of John, he says to everyone, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the one you're looking for. And, and then Jesus sort of does some miracles and, and he, he, he indicates that there's something special about him. But this is the first time that, that he says, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I'm the Messiah. And he chooses to reveal that to her. That's a significant moment uh, in, in the revelation of Jesus. Uh, she's not just someone married five times. She's someone that Jesus loves. And she's not just a Samaritan. She's a follower of Jesus. And he doesn't allow that nationality to be a barrier between him and her. You can read how the disciples are shocked when they return to the well to find Jesus talking to them. Like the nationality was a barrier for them, but Jesus says, no, I don't care that she's a Samaritan. I just want to encourage her and offer her living water. And so we need to be careful that we don't minimize people. And, and we do that uh, quite naturally by giving tags to people. Don't we? Look, tags are necessary. Um, we, we call people that are fleeing from a dangerous situation, we call them refugees. That's a tag. It's, it's accurate. I mean, the word has a meaning. They're people that are looking for refuge. But, but what do you think of when you think of a refugee? Right? It probably doesn't matter whether they come from you know, different parts of the world. We just think of refugees. And we think of certain things. 
And when we call them refugees and give them a tag like that, now we don't have to be overwhelmed by each of their stories, by each story of suffering, by each story of need. Now they've just become refugees. They're part of the refugee problem. And we do that with, with any number of things. If you have a bad experience with a dentist, and a dentist comes and sits in a chair at church, you might feel negative towards the dentist. Because that's how you describe them. It's Bob the dentist. right? And you don't like dentists. And so we've given them that time. And we might recognize their, their academic and their uh, studies, their abilities and skills that they have, but we've minimized who they are as an individual. We don't really care if Bob the dentist is a nice guy or not. He's a dentist. And, and so we can categorize people. And when, we, when we do that, when we speak in generalizations, we minimize who they are as people. And so I, I believe that the picture that Jesus illustrates for the church is one where we get to know people. One where we invest in people. One where we want to get beyond the tags and the labels. Let me just throw one more at you. Think of the Pharisees. What do you think of when you think of a Pharisee? They're bad guys. They're all men. Um, Ever thought of a female Pharisee? I bet you that there's that thought crossed your mind. They're all men, and uh, they're all legalists. Right? And they'll walk around and they'll nitpick if you do something. And whenever we read Pharisee in the Bible, we have a picture, something like that. And then Paul says, hey, I'm a Pharisee. And we go, what? What? Jesus called a Pharisee to come and follow him? And so we're, we're forced to challenge. So Jesus breaks through those barriers, those labels, those tags that we want to give people. Tags are unavoidable. It's just language. It's how we, how we move through the world. But we have to be committed to move beyond them. I want to give you this verse from Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 as we finish. I think, John, I know in the video you, you referenced Philippians 2 just a little bit after this. In Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceits. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. I want to share one last example with you. I saw a video this week, um, and it was of different news stations uh, from, I guess, across Europe. And the reporters were reporting on the war in the Ukraine. And they said things like, it was a collection, I'm not saying this is every, I don't want to characterize all reporters, but on this particular collection of four or five different news reports, they they consistently said, it's not like this is North Africa, or this is the Middle East, or this is somewhere else, this is Europe, and we have refugees and we have war. And, and the, it was just so, they were oblivious to it. I mean, we understand what they're saying, that Europe has gone through an extended period of peace, perhaps, if you overlook, you know, Kosovo and, you know, other things. But uh, it, they, they were in shock that this could be happening in Europe. 
And, and, and it just came across when it was collated in that way. It's just how um, their view of themselves and perhaps people who looked like them or people who lived near them was so different than it was for people in other parts of the world. People in different cultures, in different societies, in different locations, well, yeah, they can be prone to violence and outbreaks of war and explosions. Like, that happens there, but not here. I can't believe it's happening here. Never mind that historically Europe's been home to some of the great wars, right? Just the world wars of the, the last century were predominantly European wars. But I think when it says do nothing out of safe, selfish ambition or vain conceit, it's so easy to slip into that, of thinking that me and my church or my situation or my community or my whatever is, is, is better Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. That hits home, doesn't it? Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. And so I want to suggest that how we talk about these women at the well and the woman caught in adultery and the labels that we use tells more about us than it does about them. And how we talk about others around us, in our city, in our church, works exactly the same way. It tells more about us than it does about them. So as we go through this week, let's consider, how are we doing at valuing others above ourselves? I'm so glad that Jesus made that choice. We're going to uh, be led in, in a song as we lead into the, the Lord's Supper. But uh, during this song, if you have a prayer card, if you'd like to hold it up, we'll uh, collect those to be included in the shepherd's blessing at the end. In Gethsemane alone, tarry ye here and watch with me.